You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm delighted to be here tonight in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee to continue our Origin Speaker Series. I'm Spike Jurda, the owner of Woodbury Kitchen here in Baltimore. This gathering is intended to advance the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and producers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish and shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that this community is doing in our area. The conversation is held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop, in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Good evening, uh, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for coming out tonight. This is our 30th Origins, so we're very excited. Not too shabby. Um, it's hard to believe that when we started this series four years ago that we'd still be here, but here we are. <laughs> um, thanks for joining us tonight for this very important topic, um, talking about our local farms. Um, today I just learned that a local sort of institution, I think, Trickling, Trick, Trickling Springs uh, Creamery is closing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Two of our farmers from prior origins have ceased operations. So while it's not all doom and gloom, um, I think this highlights the urgency of this conversation about our local farms. What can we do to keep our farms healthy and economically viable? So let's just get right to it. Um, We're thrilled to welcome an all-star female panelist tonight, excluding Spike. Thank you all for coming and participating tonight. Um, I'm going to start by introducing Shelby, who's over on Spike's left. Shelby Com is the... I love your last name. (laughs) Shelby Com is the campaign coordinator for Fair Farms, a program convened by Waterkeepers Chesapeake. She's a graduate of St. Mary's College in Maryland, where she received her undergraduate degree in public policy and art, and art history, what, like a triple major? It was a double, <laughs> like, art and art history program, so oh, okay. two, yeah, two oh, majors. Overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> Before Fair Farms, um, Shelby worked for the Southern Maryland Agricultural Development Commission and served as the sustain- sustainability coordinator at her alma mater. The Fair Far- Farms campaign brings together consumers, farmers, public health professionals, and conservationists to advocate for a food system that is equitable, fair to farmers, invests in homegrown healthy farms, foods, and restores our waterways. So welcome, Shelby. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Next, I'll introduce Dina, who's over here to my left. Dina Liebman, uh, her commitment to conservation and sustainable agriculture has propelled her through a long career in wildlife biology and communications positions at environmental policy and scientific institutions. She is now the executive director of Future Harvest, 
Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture, also known as Future Harvest Casa, a farm-based nonprofit working to advance sustainable agriculture in the lower mid-Atlantic. Dina is also co-owner of Zigbone Farm Retreat, a 100-acre sheep and goat farm, and naturally built retreat center. Why don't we do origins there? Welcome, Dina. Thanks for being here. And to Dina's left is Ann Palmer. Ann is a program director at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future and a senior research associate at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the Department of Health, Behavior, and Society. She directs the Food Policy Networks Project, which seeks to improve the capacity food policy councils and similar organizations to advance food system policies. Anne's research interests include food retail, food policy, uh, food policy councils, food environments, just everything. It goes too. on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it keeps going. Obesity, urban agriculture, local and regional food systems, and community food security. In collaboration with seven other universities in the Northeast, she is a co-investigator on a USDA-funded project that explores how to use regional food systems to improve community food security. Prior to joining CLF, Anne worked for the Johns Hopkins Center for Communication Programs for 13 years. So welcome, Anne. Uh, lastly, I just wanted to say it takes a, a committed group of individuals to keep Origins going. Uh, I owe an immense debt of gratitude to both Spike and Hannah, who have been with us since the beginning. Where's Hannah? She doesn't. Um, so thank you. She's making something happen. Yeah, in she's making. <laughs> That's what she does. There she is. You're getting your. You're getting your <laughs> so. Thanks also to Donnie Carlo, who is recording tonight's program. And for those of you that are new tonight, and I see a few new faces, um, tonight's proceedings are recorded. Uh, and then uh, we create a podcast um, and you can find it on Heritage Radio Network. Um, and so just a couple of things about that. When we get to the Q&A part of the evening, these are not amplified in any way. They're just for recording. So, but I do ask you to raise your hand, uh, and I'll come around with the mic, so it just makes for a clearer recording. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so Mary Romeo services our Facebook page, and the amazing team here at Artifact for always creating a warm home for our events. And I do want to add that, other than Spike, it is an all-female team out there as well. <laughs> so that's it. All right. Take it away. I, yeah, I would say also like dinner tonight is going to be so good that I, we could almost just stop right now because uh. <laughs> I'm so excited for supper tonight. Um, but we have an amazing conversation uh, to be had. And I think it's really appropriate that this is our 30th Origins because we've heard from our growers and our makers and people that, are, that I think are the, the kind of the, the, the foundation and, and they're what make up our food system and what makes this food system so interesting and diverse and great over these 30 um, um, episodes. And now it's maybe this is the time where we really take stock of where we are as a food system. And I think we have a great panel here tonight to talk about that. I will say that the news today that we were all following uh, in the ag world where words like, words like, um, like explosive and, and unheard of um, uh, were, were resonating was the news that 
Trickling Springs had closed. And uh, there was other news too, but in, in the ag world, uh, we were all kind of um, um, talking about that. And I was getting a lot of calls from folks that I knew um, who are scrambling now to figure out where their grass-fed milk is going to come from. And I, I, I think I was among the first, if not the first, uh, customer of Trickling Springs uh, back in the day when we were opening Woodbury. That was, for, for me, 13 years ago. They've been around for, I think, closer to 16 or 17 years. And um, a big blow. And I think, if anything, that kind of helps us understand that lo these, these local systems that we have, these local uh, um, growers and makers and processors, are part of a much bigger world, a, a world that is largely dominated by um, industrial, massively scaled uh, operations. Across the board, you know, we've seen, I think the story in, in ag and food for the last 20 or 30 years has been one of consolidation, where multi-million dollar corporations have become hundred million dollar, multi-billion dollar corporations. And they are, they are, for better or worse, kind of what our food system is made up of these days, now, except for what we're here to talk about tonight, which is the, the small-scale farm um, that means so much to so many of us in this room. And so I want to kind of, a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, when we have growers and makers on, we'll, we'll spend a, a good bit of time um, talking about what they do and how they do it. That's been central to what Origins has been about, talking, you know, explaining and helping us all understand. But tonight I really want to jump in uh, with this panel to, to where we see our food system right now. Um, for me, there's, there's a parallel, I guess. I, I, I'd like to start with the idea that there, is there a parallel, perhaps, between what we see with climate and, I think, the irrefutable and, and somewhat um, kind of scary place we are with climate right now, how, how, how you know, the, the odds seem almost stacked against us in some ways, if you, if you believe the science, and I think most of the folks in this room do. Um, is small-scale agriculture in a similar place um, to where we are with climate. And I guess the way I might ask that is like, it's one thing to care, but do we care enough and are we doing enough on behalf of small scale agriculture? Are we gonna keep it around? The, the way I think we framed this conversation was, what, is it do or die for family farms? I kind of want, now or never, right. Now or never, and I kind of believe that might be a good question to be asking right now. So that's a lot, but if, if anybody wants to kind of jump in and, and start maybe by answering that question, do you believe, is it now or never, are family farms going to be around uh, going down the road the next 50, 100 years? Or maybe will we be living in the moment where meaningful local agriculture kind of finally faded out? Yes, I'll take that out. Yes. <laughs> it's a big question. Um, so... I think we have no choice if we want if we want food security in our region. And Johns Hopkins has done a, a lot of research on food security in the Chesapeake Bay region, and it's absolutely dependent on local agriculture. And we're not talking about export-oriented agriculture. We're talking about fruits and vegetables and meats that are produced here for the table. So um, without that, if there's a disruption, a huge disruption, and climate change is coming fast, we have to be able to produce that food in, in our area. 
and it has to be transportable in our area with little fossil fuel. So there is no choice, right? Are so, you saying that in some, is that like a doomsday scenario where like food can't get to us from elsewhere in the world or what are you? That could be, I, I don't know, it feels, I think we all share this it's, it's, and feels unstable. Um, <laughs> And <laughs> that was unstable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it feels it feels like it's not out of the realm of possibility with hurricanes, with weather disruptions. This drought we're in now is it's really serious. And last year it was too much rain. Um, one of our premier farmers, one straw farm, had to close up um, almost a month early, which is a huge chunk of their budget because it rained too much. This year, they're having to irrigate nonstop because it's droughty. I mean, it's, it's really difficult working conditions. Um, but the farmer will rise to the challenge here if it has a market. So my message is that consumers have to get out there. They have to go to the farmer's market. They have to buy freezers. They have to stock up on grass-fed meats. <coughs> Um, they have to freeze, can, whatever through the winter. It's, it's an imperative. But, you know, we've had the conversation. There is no grass-fed meat. There is. So <laughs> Grain finished, is that what you're There is a, more and more it's grain finished. But even having your cows on pasture a good chunk of the time is better than not being on pasture. And also there are 100% grass-fed farms. I encourage you to go to Amazing Grazing on the Future Harvest website, a listing of 200 farmers, who, and many of whom are 100% grass-fed. And finished. And finished. In our region. 100%. Oh, that's so good to hear. Clark Zellio, Whiffletree. Grandview. Grandview. I'm sure you all know. Flying plow. <laughs> Same thing. Flying plow beef? A few. Yes. Great. Kathy is, is our uh, founder of our beginner farmer training program. So. Thank you. Well, let's. Yeah. Sure, yeah. We? I mean, I feel like to kind of piggyback off of that, um, small farms are also in a unique position. Uh, especially diversified farms, to be more resilient in the face of climate change, um, especially compared to a monoculture operation where if you have a certain pest, it could potentially wipe everything out. But if you have an operation that is growing multiple things, um, yeah, it's, it's more likely to be able to kind of take on that challenge in a time of changing weather and, and changing uh, climate. So... Some hope there. Yeah, okay. I think so. I think so. But I mean, as Tina said, consumers need to kind of vote with their forks and use their purchasing power to be able to support these farms if they are going to succeed. Um, another avenue where we work is policy. So we support policy that tries to help those small to mid-sized sustainable farms in Maryland. Um, and that's another critical angle, especially if economically you aren't able to buy from a small farm in Maryland. Um, but, you know, maybe you can click a button that says, I want to support this piece of policy and let my decision maker know that I want a more community-based food system that is supporting these small sustainable farmers. So I think there are a few different avenues. And but we do need to act 
Okay, so at the risk of sounding like an academic, I'm going to ask you, um, can you define what you mean by small farms? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and because I feel like there are some mid-sized agriculture is really suffering right now. And we are losing <clears throat> the U.S. You know, the census came out, and that is the sector that is really going away fast. Yeah. And actually, smaller farms are growing, although we know that, you know, so there's a capacity issue. And I think there's, like, a regional capacity issue. So I'm curious, when you say that, do you just look, are you looking at the ownership issues, or are you look, thinking? Well, are you, I think it's the economics that concern me a lot about, you know, what I know about um, farming in this region is what I know from the farmers that I work with. Yeah. And those are s small farms. I guess by my definition, who grow f food for people to eat. Um, so there's, like, I think of, I mean, Joan and, you know, Drew are a fairly good-sized farm, yeah. right? There's Richardson's Farm, there's Tom Albright. I mean, there's people yeah. that are get, have hundreds of acres, so, and those are more mid-sized farms. They're not organic, necessarily, I mean, Joan and Drew, but it, I think that piece of it is going to be really important to sustain because when we're looking at volume if you look at like what is the food security of a region and yes. I'd like to I think your point was really well taken Dina is when we did I was part of this regional project it was fascinating to look at what do we grow in the northeast region and so we were defining it as from Maine down to West Virginia including the DC area and you know if we wanted to become self-sufficient in our foods system in the region, we were looking at categories of foods. So we did pretty well with animal-based foods, right? We could, you know, like 76% of, you know, meats could come and, you know, would go down eggs where, you know, if you were, and this is not like how, because food is getting exported, right? It's definitely out of the region. Right. So it's not the real numbers, but it's like what we grow, what we could use in this region. But it doesn't, it's not the way the if food If we didn't system, export it. If we didn't export Got it. Got it. Exactly. We do far worse with plant-based foods. So um, seven, like 26% of vegetables we could grow, but like 18% of the fruits. And so we're really dependent on other parts of the country. We're really dependent on other parts of the world to feed us right now. And we are losing a lot of our prime farmland and we lose it to development and that is a huge problem. And so the more, you know, I look at it like thinking, okay, once it's gone into development, we don't get it back. That's not something that's ever going to be farmed again. And we, if we're looking at the food security for the country, not to sound like a nationalist, but you, we don't want to be dependent on the rest of the world to feed us. We really want to be able to sustain some level of um, capacity and and be able to have foods grown in our area in our so you know we say anything down from Florida like if you're I was laughing the other day um, I was at a store where it had Northeast apples and I was so excited because nobody thinks about like regional you know it's like they, somebody actually thought to label something as a Northeast product like. That's important. So it, you know, there's this, the local farmers that are the smaller growers and the farmers markets, and then there's this ones that are in more of the wholesale, you know, markets. And you can pay attention when you're at supermarkets and at stores and start supporting producers in the region, even because that's a really important piece to make farming and agriculture viable for us. And it's you know it's unusual. People don't normally do that, but that's kind of what that project was trying to do: is to get people to think of themselves. Not just we're, you know, the farmer with the face is important, but it, we also are looking at producers for, that are all over, and we really want to think about it from a bigger perspective too. Is it would it be fair to say that we've lost way more agricultural land though to commodity ag, if we're talking about? I don't know. I actually wouldn't be able to answer that. I well, mean, in terms of like what's converted over. Well, I guess that's a way of saying that it's been way more consolidated. Yes. If Maryland has say a million acres actively farmed, and ninety-six percent of that is for corn and soy. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge potential there to 
you know. For tablecrafts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. But there has to be a marketplace for it. Right? Yes. I think that's. It used the, to be the tomato processing capital of the country, right. if not the world. It was yeah. just um, all the tomatoes that were canned came from the Delmarva region. Right. And then it just became more economically just the whole export nature of agriculture led to this grain and also uh, it's feed grain it's not food yeah. gr uh, grain. human grain right. yeah. yeah yeah so it, what i'm looking for grain. i mean the economics i think are at the heart of this and what i'm looking for from you guys is some some hopeful something hopeful about that you know <laughs> because ultimately i think the farms that i'm talking to and the farms that i work with on a daily basis I'm not entirely sure they're going to make it, yeah. and and that's you know that's what I wanted this conversation. That's where I wanted to help this conversation go. Is like, are we going to have these farms in our midst, the smaller farms, the farms that grow food for people? Are they going to be economically, and maybe otherwise viable, down the road? And I, I'm wondering if the work yeah. that you guys do is supporting that, and what you're doing to support that, what we can do to support that. I really want to cut through kind of the. The, the policy stuff and the to get to understand like sometimes I feel like we're kind of a, the, the fiddling on the deck of the Titanic or something we might be at the at you know what I said earlier is like we might be at the moment where we get to enjoy this stuff and and future generations don't and we, we kind of lost it because we we didn't do what was necessary that our response to the threat of uh, posed by giant ag and and giant um, um, industrial food processors and manufacturers was too much. I mean, I think there are a lot of exciting policy opportunities, not to keep like honking the policy horn, but it's a large part of what we do, and I think it's very important. Um, you know, I do think that a critical piece is shifting subsidies from large-scale monoculture commodity to some of our smaller diversified farms and not, you know, propping up a precarious system, but instead supporting a system that, as I said, can be much more resilient in the long term. Um, here in Maryland, we're also part of a group called the Maryland Food for Maryland Institutions Group, which is a study group housed in Department of General Services um, with all sorts of stakeholders. It's us and Farm Bureau and some legislators. Um, and we're just kind of looking at the landscape of local food in Maryland to try and figure out how much food state institutions are buying, what are the challenges uh, to institutions in buying locally grown food? And then what are the challenges to farmers in, in, in supplying to institutions? So with a lot of the smaller farms, we're finding it's going to be aggregation. Um, and yeah, I mean, right now there are so many information gaps. So really the goal of this is just to get a lay of the land and then pull together a report that we can give to policymakers in June 2020. Um, so recommendations on how we can bolster that up on an institutional level. So it's not just on the consumer either. Um, so it's exciting. That's I great. Think. Yeah. I, I mean, even though that's a because I mean, think about policy being bigger. You know, not Tell institutional policy. Tell us what's great about we that. We are policy wonks. <laughs> but no, I think it is true. Like we can, you can do. I mean, it's. We, of course, we want everybody to buy as much as they can locally, right. right? I work with a lot of families and a lot of, you know, my the populations I work with mostly cannot afford to buy local food, frankly. And so it's really about can they make ends meet, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some great programs out there with food stamp dollars and doubling bucks. And, you know, there's some great incentives. But I think what's exciting is something like that, to me, is really hopeful. Because for some of those farms, they could be big enough to aggregate. And that could make them, and that's a consistent, steady you know, supply 
that they are, there's a demand there, they've got to meet that supply, and if they can do that in some sort of aggregation, then they, that gives them an audience that isn't dependent upon the whims of consumers, right? Like if it rains at the farmer's market and they lose, you know, that, I mean, those kinds of things are, can be really scary. But if you have a steady stream, it seems to me that that is very promising. And that for some of those farms, that's probably not possible, but for others, it probably would be, right? It's like, how much are they growing? Do they have a product that they can get into that larger aggregation right. place? Yeah. And then we can open up more opportunities for farmers, too, to participate if they know that you know, they're going to need to grow a consistent supply of X for yep. this institution, then it's kind of more stable on both ends. Exactly. And the, the farmers, the premium will be paid by the institutions because they understand the importance of local. Exactly. That's going to happen. We are hoping so. Okay, good. Yes. I mean, some of that is also going to be government support, too, yeah. Yeah. which is, you know, where we can transition and get the state so policy to change. So an example of this is where it's really worked well is with Maryland wineries. They are required to um, purchase 10% of their grapes yeah. from local grape yards, mm -hmm. and they do. And so there's kind of this built-in guarantee for grape growers and why they can't do that for state institutions, which is a small part of the market, but it's a real symbolic effort if our state institutions, and we're talking about what? Uh, Hospitals, jails, um, not schools yet, but. Yeah, and making their procurement systems open to this, it's, it's gonna have a snowball effect. But I'd like to talk about hope, okay, because in my line of work, um, it can be pretty disheartening. Um, we run a large beginner farmer training program. We've had, 330 graduates, the, the great news is that there is an explosion of interest in farming on, on the part of young people and second careers. The disheartening news is that there's a lot of startup and give up. And our job is to give all the assistance they can possibly have and more until they're like, go away. Um, <laughs> to make them successful, mentors, um, connecting them with financial resources, and still farms fail. And it's, but we are heartened, we'll keep looping around here, by the fact that um, it's no bigger than the rate of small business failure. Mm. So that it's really about marketing savvy, it's about, like you, you rave about Moon Valley Farm, um, there's Chesapeake Farm to Table. It's really about having the, just that, that thing that makes a small business successful. And a farmer has to be a good production person, a good marketer, a good financer, finance specialist. Um, <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. They're Renaissance people. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, I think it's, it might be a question even you want to ask. It's like, is it, is it fair to, to kind of train people to be farmers if it's not clear that they can make money do, being a farmer, especially with the kind of farmers that you guys train? Well, since subsistence farming has transitioned you know, out for the most part, there has always been off-farm income. It is rare, in, except for on larger scale. And right. they... The larger scale, like the One Straws, um, which is a 200-acre organic vegetable farm, Richardson's, they make their living farming. But for small-scale agriculture, beyond subsistence, someone has always worked off the farm. 
And that's okay because it keeps working lands working. Mm -hmm. It keeps one spouse employed on the farm. It keeps the knowledge going. Um, I don't think we should have these unreal expectations. I'm starting, I'm starting <laughs> to be less hopeful. I mean, if you're telling me the way to, to do the hardest thing that I know to do is to actually have another job or another job, that seems to... And no, it's thing, to marry wealthy. Uh, well, <laughs> God, I hope, yes, that's, no, no, no. I hope that's, that's not the case. That's kind of my Jewish side. And, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, my mother marry wealthy. Um, <laughs> but it's... Um, That cannot be the case. Yes, it yeah, can. No, I mean, ninety percent of small farms have another. Uh, I get. All right, I miss. I misspoke. That is obviously the case. <laughs> that cannot be what we are aiming for. Why not? Because it just seems like that is such a hard thing to do, farming. And yeah. you're going to say that the only way to do it is if somebody else is making money. It's not the only way. I mean, there are well, couples who uh, or partners who um, who are making it, but they are frugal and usually when kids enter the equation um, or there's some financial extra added, it, it gets tougher. So is but, it, so, so a single person cannot be a farmer? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, David Giusti right. is, a, is a great example but, of a single farmer. So that single farmer would have to have another income and be a farmer? No, no, he's making it on, on But I'm side. saying your model is, you, it needs to be too, off farm income and farm income? Most of the time. 90% of small farms, but 50% for larger scale operations have another, another income stream coming in. But I mean, in an ideal world, I would like for that not to be the case. You know, I would like for farm work to be valued enough where it is something that, you know, it can be a sole income. But going back to subsidies, I feel like it would be great if we had a government that could support that and really value those smaller farmers in a way that where they could be sustainable on one income. Right, but we've never had, I mean, you could take, we've never had that government. We didn't have that government under Obama, under Clinton. I mean, God, forget about what we got right now. We've never had that government. Oh, but it's on the campaign trail. I mean, it, <laughs> don't roll your eyes. I'm rolling my eyes because I feel real urgency around this, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, we're, we're all but looking for answers. the fact that it's in the political lexicon, that it's it's in the debates right now, right. that almost, what, what, three or four of the... Candidates have mentioned it mm -hmm. in more than one debate. It is reassuring to hear and that there is And it is in the Green New Deal. However you feel about that, that it's, it's starting to percolate. And all these ideas take a long time to percolate. But you're right. We're in an urgent situation. We are, yeah. Yes. Dana, you talk to a lot of farmers. And I just I love do. to hear. Day what, in, day out. Yeah, what, do you, what do you hear from them? Uh, okay, so I talked to, today to David Pock who we both know is a big curmudgeon when it comes to farming. So, um, he is one of the most successful organic vegetable farmers on about 30 acres. I, I can't remember what his acreage 70. is. He went through our program. He's an ex-Navy, and he's like Mr. Efficiency. And he said he's never done anything so hard, but he's actually very successful. He's made, he's makes a profit. He pays himself, and he makes a profit, too. Um, but yeah, so I that's I, so I hear from him. He's never that it is very hard. That you have to have savvy. <coughs> that you have to be an excellent business person, not just a great producer. Um, so I, I hear that from the David Pox. I hear um, 
I don't know. Uh, it, it's hard to categorize it, but I, I'm hearing many successful stories. I'm hearing that there's a, um, like that, that a lot of our graduates get gigs in the winter to tide them over, just like a teacher would work in the summer. That's what I'm hearing more and more. Like there's one spouse full-time on the farm, the other one works on the farm in the summer, gets a wintertime gig to it. carry it over. A lot of uh, new farmers leasing land, especially because they want to be around the markets of Baltimore and D.C. And it's the land is really expensive. So they're going to lease arrangements. Well, this creates all sorts of issues around water conservation, you know, because an, another part of our mission is conservation practices. How do you do that on leased land that mm -hmm. you don't own? Mm -hmm. How do you invest in that? Um, there, and there's all sorts of programs springing up around that. I mean, I live in a row house in Hamden. I'm not even sure I want to plant a garden there. <laughs> I may not be there next year. But that's, uh, I get, I mean, I get that, that feeling of wanting to invest in land that's not yours. That's not a traditional farming model, is it? I mean. Tenant farmers. Yeah. Or is it? It yeah. is. Tenant farmers. Definitely. Yeah. I think I think you're sort of missing the point a little bit in terms of if you want if you want to have full-time small-scale farmers that can make a living off of off of the farm what you need to do is expand the market that's what has to happen and it's hard to expand the market it, it, with small-scale farming because inherently it's pretty inefficient, compare, especially compared to like the real big guys. With land production, you mean? What's that? You, with land production or like production uh, per uh, acre? Or? The, the labor, okay. uh, mostly labor, because you can't afford to buy uh, all the different types of equipment. That, you know, if you want to grow carrots and potatoes and tomatoes and garlic and lettuce and, 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 it's all different. Every, everything has a different... If you want to do it the most efficient way, uh, you're, you have to have specialized equipment. So, you know, like, I don't, I don't grow potatoes because I don't have a potato lifter. Okay? I've, I've grown them in a little bit, you know, we dig them by hand, but I just can't compete, so I don't grow them. So what do you mean by expand the market? Well, I, I, I was going to... We, we, we did something that I think is an example of a, a bunch of different ways that people could do it, which is... We decided a few years ago to only focus on the restaurant market. That's all we do. What's your farm? Karma Farm. Oh, you're Karma Farm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, that, and, and that has enabled us to, to move into like specialty products that have a relative price premium to compare to potatoes, let's say. Um, but there was always this underlying conflict because... The other farms that do restaurants and have CSAs and maybe do a, a farmer's market, they have this capability to, well, if they have too much of one thing, they can put it in the CSA. And, you know, if they don't have enough, they can, you know, try to figure out, you know, who they're going to apportion what to. But the main issue is they have too much of something. They're, they have too much tomatoes they have too much and it's a perishable and it's a and it's a perishable product so just to give you an example of a way to expand the market and this was just happenstance and luck we were contacted by a former csa member of mine we don't do a csa anymore 
She works at the Eastern East Baltimore Medical Center, which is in a real serious food desert. And they said they, they wanted to start a program there where they would be able to give vegetables to their patients at an extremely low price or potentially free. Uh, and they were going to try and go out and get grant money. They did go out. We've done this for three years now. They went out. They got $5,000. And they came to me and said, look, just give us some you know, specific things, three or four things a week for spring, summer, and fall. And you can pick and choose what, what you're going to give us, but we expect it to be a low price. And we did it, and what happened was we grew a few things specifically for them. So we grew some tomatoes, and uh, they were hybrid tomatoes. We didn't grow heirloom tomatoes for them. We grew hybrid tomatoes. Cucumbers, we grew a highly productive cucumber, not a cucumber that some chefs might say, well, you know, it yeah. doesn't taste good enough. God forbid. Okay, <laughs> right, okay. So, so we did that, and we actually sold those cucumbers to a lot of restaurants, but we also had a lot that we could sell to East Baltimore Medical Center. And then we also have things that, you know, this week or that week, we just didn't sell all of it, and they would take it, and they would pay for it. Hmm. And That's great. it's been, you know, so... I have almost nothing, I grow, I sell almost everything I grow. And that's a real big help. And the restaurants who want, you know, really fancy certain kinds of specialty herbs and garnishes and edible flowers and all that kind of stuff that we do, we wouldn't take that to the East Baltimore Medical Center. But, you know, commodity cucumbers, uh, hybrid uh, tomatoes, you know, we had excess eggplant for a few weeks. We what? had excess peppers. And so how's your farm doing? I mean, how, how, how are you doing? Are you able to make a living off your farm? Okay. Well, I, the first seven years of my farm, it was basically a hobby farm. Okay. Uh, my son got involved three years ago and said he wanted to be a farmer. So I said, we have to figure out how to make money. And we are making money now. And I, we make enough money. I don't. I still don't pay myself, but I could pay myself a little. Uh, I, we've just been putting it back in the farm, and now my son gets paid, and all the people that work for us, I'm able to pay them actually a reasonable wage, much better than I did three or four years ago. So I get better people, more consistency, et cetera. That's key. Yeah, that's yeah. key. Yay. All I'm saying is, is that the mark. One way to expand the market is to find these specialty situations where there's a there's a there's a, uh, a synergy between helping the farmer and helping somebody in need um, and, and this is an example of one I'm sure there's lots of different ways to do this there are but I, I get concerned when we ask our farmers to go do figure this out I mean that's brilliant and I love that and it seemed like it was a chance kind of interaction in a way awesome but I mean still really great but is that going to be the thing that saves this, you know? And, you know, I, I had this conversation with somebody on, on the board of Fresh Farms in D.C., and they were like, you know, these farmers need to be explaining to people why this is important, something to that effect. And I'm like, the farmers need to be doing that? No. I mean, it's like they're actually doing the work, and then they need to somehow convince us that this is also important, which it is. I just, uh, I get, I, I love that example, but I'm still, like, concerned about what we're asking of our growers. And Dina's, you know, she pointed out that growers these days need to be kind of this amazing... They're small business owners. Yeah. And yeah. they have to have all the savvy that a small business owner has. They really do. 
Otherwise, otherwise you work on someone else's farm. Okay. <laughs> it's true. And is there some? Is there some? Is there a picture that you can paint of of where you know economically this where we get to a better place for small small scale growers? <laughs> no, I'm probably going to be more depressing than anything. <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean I mean because I listened to your story and I talked to someone who runs a center over in East Baltimore, the medical director for center, who was doing a program very similar to this, and he said to me he was very concerned. People left that a lot of the people coming into the medical center didn't. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing with the vegetables. Like, I mean, people don't have cook, you know, so there's like a huge piece of that that we don't know once it leaves where what's really happening. Is it being consumed? And so it's it, like, this is such a complex problem. I mean, it's like from every step of the way, there's things that we have to be thinking about. And why I think it's so important to have these conversations with people from all different, you know, that work in all these different areas because it's impossible to understand it if you're looking at it just from your own perspective. And I feel like those opportunities, those marketing opportunities are there and probably there even at the institutional level, right? right. I mean, there's like some really, you know, I kind of follow more like what's happening. Like I know a little bit what's going on here, but I also follow like what's happening around the country. And I feel like that there are some great stories out there. In their heart, but even the ones that are great stories, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's been this trial and error, and I do feel like we are a little bit in that precipice of, you know, this is either going to work now or we're really going to be screwed, right? I mean, this is, I mean, it's kind of like a tipping point, and so I do feel like for, you know, for people who can afford to support growers that are doing what we want them to do, we need to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, it, ha it cannot be about price. Like, when I talk to friends of mine who are shopping at Aldi, I'm just like, oh. Do you understand what you're doing? Like, you know, I just, it's heartbreaking to me. I mean, because it's like, they can afford it. We can afford to be supporting this. A lot of people can. There are a lot of people who can't, and we can't put the burden on those people that cannot. And so, to me, it's like this. So you work at Hopkins. Yeah. So how do you feel about the progress Hopkins has made around sourcing locally? I don't know that they've, I, all I know about is really the Bon Appetit, the Homewood campus. And so I know Bon Appetit has got, has sourced locally and they had the, they were part of the real food challenge. Mm -hmm. So there's like a percentage, you might know more about this than I do actually, Shelby. It's like they, they have a commitment to sign on for X percentage every year. I think it was supposed to grow right. from their commitment. Has it? Yeah, I think it has. They, I mean, they have to like report back on the metrics. So I could talk, I, you're not asking the wrong person, but I do, my colleague was one of the people who started that when she was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. So I think it, but here, so there it is. You know, this is not a cheap institution to attend, right? So you're the, the higher education institutions that have students that are paying a lot of money to go there are getting this high-end food and they can afford to do that. They are. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are. They do. Yeah. yeah. A lot of higher institutions. Yeah. They feature farms. Yeah, they do. So they feature growers. But I think it's part of it is like you either have a institutional. So you've got Bon Appetit is part of Cisco. Who is it part of? It's part of a large right. They Compass. Mean, Compass. Okay. So they're like a, a niche market within Compass, right? And so yes. you could be doing. I mean, they have a commitment. Bon Appetit does to be sourcing from more local. They could be. Go ahead. Someone's raising their hand. <laughs> Please enlighten us. I'm probably saying this all wrong, right? I just want to make sure we stay on this. This is this is one of the places we need to be. But if you do, you have something to add about this, about this, because we can. No, I'll wait. Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay. Because so, I want to I want to just say I'm skeptical, and it's kind of my I've been af after this for a long time, uh, and 
I'm skeptical about claims in general that are made on behalf of local food, on behalf of, and I'm skeptical, and I'm kind of like wondering, like if Hopkins, which has, which is where you work, is not there, who else should, could we expect to be there at this point? Well, I think it depends on, I mean, I don't, I guess not there, I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, that, that was, that university, so the Homewood campus has the institutional, right? They have the bigger contract. The campuses, the East Baltimore campuses are like in the hospital, it's a whole other ballgame. Why not? Right? Why wouldn't they? They well, have they, more recent. Right. The city seed, is that the new? Yeah, the one down yeah. in the human. So they do the, the city human. seed kitchen now. Yeah. And also, and I can tell you that, it, you know, on the Homewood Kansas, a huge amount of the vegetable produce are local. Um, and in the hospital, I can't say that a lot of it is local at all. I can just say that I recently was visiting and I saw that they had a whole kind of display of all City Seeds products that they're bringing yeah. in from there. So I think what, the, what you're getting at, though, Spike, is that um, are those producers you're worried about, are they able to get into those marketplaces? Because it's, they have to be able to get to wholesalers, right. right? So some of it is you've got Keeney, you've got Coastal. Like, those are the guys that are doing the aggregation for these farms. And those, they are, I mean, you can look and see when they're writing down, you know, what the farm is from. So what percentage it is, is there external verification? I don't know. I can't yeah. tell you that. But I do know that there is a movement in, you know, in the country to move towards this because people are starting to recognize that, that a, this a has to be larger. A measurable movement? Yeah, the Real Food Challenge, that's been highly successful. Uh, you know, I got to say, if it's the Real Food <laughs> Challenge that's going to save us, then I'm, I'm a little... No, but I mean, that's a higher institution. I mean, that's, a, that's yeah. higher education. So what, what would you... So the Real the, Food Challenge was a, is a 20%, is a, a commitment to source... 20%? 20% by 2020. And, you know, uh, uh, there are a number of reasons that that feels a little... Um, inadequate at this point. One main one that I've seen some of the accounting, quote unquote, that goes on around what is considered local under the, you know, in an institutional setting. And it's not something that I think most of us in this room would recognize as a local product. Um, I'm just, I mean, and this so might be like a little- So it's like if you're starting from like 1%, right. I mean, this is, this is where I think people don't have a realistic perspective of what we are, wait, say that we buy like the local food market is 1% probably in this whole region, right? I mean, it's yeah. a very small amount of sales. So if you said you wanted to triple that, you know, I mean, that's even still small. Right. So what do, you, what do you mean when you say? Well, uh, this is, I'll, I'll share my little tale, which is I, I've been canning and, and preserving a lot in, at Woodbury for years. And um, I, I know the guys at Bon Appetit and, and, um, and you know, there was a real interest. Hopkins signed the, 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 was it called the Real Food Challenge? Mm -hmm. And in fact, Hopkins kind of exceeded. Um, um, they said we're not going to do twenty percent; we're going to do thirty percent. And I thought that's great. And then it, you know, they don't have a way to do that. They don't have a clear roadmap as to how they're going to get to thirty percent. Thirty percent would be amazing. There's no. I don't think there's a plan to get to thirty percent. Um, one thing that was possible and put in front of them because I put it in front of them was the tomatoes that we can. And I brought them in in a jar into the food service uh, facility there. And they were like, get that out of here. It's glass and it's terrible. And I said, what do you want? And they said, we want tomatoes in a number 10 can. And so I went out and I got Maryland tomatoes uh, into number 10 cans. And it was a really proud moment because I went into the, the, I went to the president's office with a, a can of tomatoes and said, here you go. And he said, great. And he said, take that down to my VP of purchasing and, and you know, let's get going. And I took it into that guy, and he was just like, this is great. 
we can definitely get this as long as it costs the same as the tomatoes we're already buying. <laughs> and, and that was more or less the end of the conversation. And I spent the next couple of years trying to sell my tomatoes to other places. <laughs> um, Harvard bought some, but Hopkins never bought a single can. And um, we used them for years here. My brother, God bless him, uh, used, used them up at uh, Wicked Sisters. And that was, that's my experience with this idea of local at the institutional level. And that's the question I asked you earlier, right. which is like, who's going to pay the premium? There was a premium of maybe three cents an ounce. Um, doable by any standards, because you're talking about an overall purchase of maybe $10,000 on a multi-million dollar a year contract. And it, was, it left, as you might be able to sense at this point, a, a, a little bit of a bitter <laughs> right. taste in my mouth. And, and that's kind of, you know, that's, that's my experience with this. And, and, and this is something that, that happened. And it, I was so proud to put that can of tomatoes on President Daniel's desk, and it never, it never went anywhere. This speaks to what Shelby was talking about, is um, that tomatoes produced in the Central Valley of California, and even in Mexico, in, in different ways, is subsidized, right? right? So yeah. that has to be dealt with first. And right now, there is a 5% price, price preference for local. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, do how, what percentage do we need to up that to kind of to make it competitive and make the local growers be competitive with some of these. Well, I can give you a little math options. on that. I'm not great with math, but commodity tomatoes for processing in the, the places that you're talking about are, you know, four and a half to five cents a pound. I was paying 27 cents a pound for the tomatoes that I was working with a grower to get grown without chemical fertilizers, without um, we had a, a higher standard for our cans with no BPA. It was kind of the first of its kind that they ever did. And so I paid essentially not a 5% premium, but a five-time premium uh, for the tomatoes that were going into that can. And that was one of the things. It's still, I still landed it, you know, I think in, a, in an area close to where they, they, they should have been able to work with it. But, you know, 5% is, is not going to get it. So, Spike, what's your solution? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I, the, the closest I can come, because it's the only thing I know how to do, is open a restaurant and try to, try to do this. And that's... Who that's can afford to eat at your restaurant? Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah, I sure can. Um, um, I mean, I think it's going to take a lot of different solutions, too, like restaurants, institutions, consumers, policy, farmers. Like, I don't think it's something that we should just put on one sector. I think it's a really complex issue. It's multifaceted, and it's going to take a multifaceted solution. And I don't think we should let perfect be the enemy of the good, either, um, in terms of, you know, aiming for percentages or... You know, and maybe this is just like the idealist in me speaking, I'm sure it is, but I, that's something that I want to hope for is, you know, even if we just take it incrementally, that at least we're moving in the right direction and moving the needle somewhat. I just don't think we're going to get there. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think we have time to do incremental. I don't, um, you know, I'm not sure we have time around climate to, to for, you know, the, the kind of... Um, but what's the alternative? Yeah. Well, the alternative is... Throw your hands up and walk away. You know, it's kind of funny because we got to this... We, the conversation almost immediately went to like food security and 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 um, it may be that that's where that's where this needs to go before we take this as a, as a community or as a society take it seriously. I think people understand that. I know there's somebody who wants to make a comment. We have comments and questions. Yeah. Okay. Huh? Um, the I'm not going to. Yeah, let's go. I'm not going to stand up. Yeah, sure. um, no. <laughs> um, I agree. I mean, ideally, yeah 
all of these changes would happen immediately, but that's not the case. And I do agree that subsidies, a change in how we do our subsidies is ultimately where the solution lies. Um, and until then, it's not going to be economically viable. Um, and then thinking about what makes it economically viable, I, don't, I also agree that the solution isn't that we have farmers who are independently wealthy or have a partner who is independently wealthy. But I do think that there are intermediary choices that have been proven to be successful and then can be proof of concepts for getting us towards those subsidies. And I think some of those models could be um, investments by local government. And I was, was wondering if anybody could speak to that. And then also collective impact models where funders and investors use their capital together to have to kind of uh, make up for that economic um, gap that that uh, would create that would create the create the incentive the economic incentive make up for that economic incentive and I was wondering if people could speak to maybe some of those capital impact models or the um, investment models or local government models so I'll start it um, but I think all of us can speak to pieces of it um, there is more social impact investing, um, which especially with groups like Iroquois Valley, and they invest in, in farms, they require a lot of those farms to be in, to qualify for the investment. Um, and I don't know how successful they are, but there are more and more of these kinds of um, uh, funding mechanisms that go direct directly to farmers. Um, there's all sorts of experimentation now with for-profit businesses uh, paying farmers for carbon investments. And I have no idea how that's going to end up paying off. But they're very optimistic, and they're sinking tons of money into these companies, Terraton and Indigo, um, Indigo, Indigo Ag. Yeah. Um, but they're just starting out. Um, so we are seeing more of that. Um, I think that uh, collaboratively, nonprofits are starting to work more together. Fair Farms and Future Harvest, along with four other partners, just received a very large grant to advance regenerative agriculture in the Chesapeake region. And part of that is dealing with these subsidy issues um, but with a focus on soil health as it benefits the farmer. And um, so increasing productivity through soil health in ways that also sequester carbon, it's, it's possible. It's a big puzzle. Um, and we're supposed to figure it out, Shelby, in the next. We got it. We got this. I know. Okay. <laughs> Five years. <laughs> we got it. We, we have, it's a seven to ten year project. Mm -hmm. Oh, so. Um, yeah. Funding is not... Ten, at the ten-year mark, right. that's for sure. But we're, you know, that's also a change that's happening on the nonprofit uh, side of things. Anybody else? I can speak to um, some models I've learned about, for, but this is more on a food retail level, but also dealing with local producers. There are municipalities in Kansas that are treating food retail as a municipal function because they've lost so many grocery stores and supermarkets that they don't have any food retail available to these smaller towns. And so they're purchasing buildings and then they're owning and managing them. So if the, if the 
operator decides to leave, um, you know, so if they're only owning the building and the operator leaves, they are just bringing in an operator. They're not trying to do all these startup costs that are associated with food retail. Or if they own the building itself, then they are, you know, sinking some money in and they've got some skin in the game. So it's a it's a very new model for them. Um, they're going to be on a webinar for us in a, in a month or so. But I talked to the guy who's been working with these different municipalities, and they do. And this actually had a lot. They have a lot of local producers who are providing um, produce for the sales of them in these particular markets. You know, I'm just going to make this push because I have to do it before this ends. And I, um, The biggest impact you can have is buying a freezer, an energy-efficient freezer, and getting yourselves to a farmer's market, buying the last of the peaches, the last of the tomatoes, sticking them in a Ziploc bag. You do not even have to can them and you stick them in your freezer, quantities of them, grass-fed meats, and feed yourselves through the winter. I do it, kind of, not really. Um, <laughs> I try, uh, but that's what I do. I support my farmers, and, um, I, and I had to invest in a freezer to do it. So it's simple, but That would never work in our house. Why? If I could make a moment. Why? Because I, I mean, I think basically what you, what you all are talking about is, is the transition from the massive food supply that we've grown up with and breaking that down in some way so that local companies can, can get into the system somehow. And it seems to me it's an impossible task, basically, the way you're talking about it. I don't understand why the state or somebody like the state, somebody with some some power can't go to our supermarkets who operate all around us, our Giants, our Wegmans, our Safeways, all these stores, because that's, it's, it's people like me that you have to convince. If we don't, the consumer, if we don't buy the stuff that you're producing, there's no hope. And if we don't, if, we don't, if we're not educated to understand why we should buy that and not something from California or Argentina or you know, somewhere where it takes a lot of fossil fuel to get us the product. So why, why doesn't the state go to Safeway and say, we want 5% of your store for only local products? And if it doesn't work financially, you show us it doesn't work financially, we'll make it work financially. Because it's in the interest of the state to make this happen, to make its farmers successful, to educate people, but you gotta play hardball here. You're not gonna be, we're not going to farmer's markets. The tiny number of people that go to farmer's markets are never gonna change the system. Right. You wanna oh, change I the disagree. system, you have to kick you people. You make, it, it is actually, I just disagree. For the local food movement has brought back tobacco farms all throughout Southern Maryland. People have farm stands out there and they're able to feed their families. It, it is absolutely an economic engine. And but talk, I hear it but, but talk, talk I hear it numbers, out. talk percentages of the population. If you want to change a system. So I come be... at it from the farmer perspective. And um, when I, I, I just talk to farmers day in and day out, and they will tell you that the local food movement, people buying local, has enabled them, an old tobacco farmer, put a farm, stand, a farm store on their farm, and they do a very robust business around 
Prince Frederick down in uh, Southern Maryland. And it's, it, it's um, I don't have firm numbers, but I'm, I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference. It really does when people buy from them. And it has saved many a family farm. So you're right, the whole system, like there's so much more work to do, but do not underestimate how important it is to farmers that customers go to farms and go to farmers markets or get CSAs and, 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 um, and keep their farmers in business. Amen. You guys are you're really talking about two different scales yes. in a way. So you're talking about producers who are in the supply chains, the, the larger supermarkets, right? That's not the same scale she's talking about. No, I want... I, want. <laughs> I mean, I think if you're going to change the system, you have, to, you have to do what Spike was saying. Johns Hopkins has to, has to buy 30% of their product that they serve their students and their faculty. They have to buy 30% of that from local Maryland, even if it costs more money. It doesn't matter. If, you, if, you, if, if they want to change the system, that's what has to happen. We're not going to do it. I mean, I'm not denying that. Who says they want to change the system? Well, you're <laughs> making a huge assumption there. I know. Their, your goals are the same as theirs, and they're not. No. Because it will, I mean, that I think But they is will like, be at some point in the future. I don't know. Actually, I think you have a good point. I, I, when I, I was listening to you about this idea that the state subsidize local farms, I thought, hmm, maybe that, that's something, because they subsidize other kinds of food in other ways. Right. So, so, yeah, we'll look into it. I have a, I'll get uh, back to you. <laughs> I have a follow-up to what Matt said with an example of an industry that did just what he's talking about with state involvement. And that's the horse racing industry that was the third largest in Maryland, in the state with the agriculture, the agribusiness, the feed companies, the seed companies, the salaries, third largest in Maryland. And it was declining, going out of business, and they granted casino licenses at the casinos and mandated I don't know what percentage, but it's nine figures now that the casino industry has given to the horse industry in Maryland and saved it. And that was a state mandate. And certainly they pulled the money from letting casinos come in, which we should have done a long time ago because every neighbor we have is doing it. And our money was walking across the borders. But that is a fine example to handle the scope and scale of the change that can save an industry. And going to farmer's markets and such isn't going to be a big enough difference to do what Spike's talking about. So here's, here's an example that has worked with state intervention. Um, a couple things. <clears throat> so I'm older than a lot of you. I bought some of your tomatoes, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> and Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So the world has been about to end a bunch of times since I was born, and somehow we're still here, and it's actually kind of good. So I think it's really important when you look at a moment in time to see what direction we're going, and it's very hard to know that when you're in the moment. Uh, there are a bunch of positive things, but they may not be totally obvious. So that's right. one thing. Thank the you. second thing I was thinking was, as a small business person, 15 years, um, 
Green Builders is my company. It's a construction company. I always tell people, my potential clients, that I can give them the same price point as conventional. And if I didn't say that, I wouldn't have any clients. And I was trying to think, well, how do I do that? Um, I also say to them, I am not the cheapest. I'm in the middle somewhere. So about your tomatoes, your guy was wanting you to be the cheapest, and you can never do that, but you shouldn't have to. Right. And the third thing I was wondering was, you know, there is a political movement, and I'm sure you thought of this because you're so far ahead of most of us, but does anyone know that? Do the students know that story? No, well, no. You guys are the first to know that. <laughs> I never really shared that except outside the, um, the, the inner circle because it was... Um, but. So I think there's a lot of room for farmers to be able to save themselves if they were given the freedom by the state and the counties to do so. Um, we say that farmers have to be great business people. We say that they have to be great marketers. But the second they try to market something different than taking vegetables to a farmer's market or a grocery store, the state or the counties really come in and shut them down. And then you have to spend tons of money on legal fees to try to find out what you can and can't do. And we have been through a lot of it, and we are not allowed to be creative in many ways. On our farm, we feel like the best way for us to sell our product is to build a community, to bring people to our space. It's a beautiful space. We have a great product, and we are only allowed to do that 12 times a year. How can you have yeah, a business? Via a special exception. Carbon. Via a special exception that costs us $40,000 to get. So it's really hard. Farmers could be really creative in how they could sell their product if the state and the counties were more supportive of that. Especially Baltimore County. Baltimore County, the strictest. There is not, you can't even say the word agritourism. And it's not agritourism, it's agri-community. We want to build a community so people that can understand as farmers. The people who come in, and, and I have grown up, I grew up in Baltimore County, 59 years, when there was nothing out there. My mother bought her eggs from this farm. She bought her meat from this farm. She bought her vegetables from this farm. And then all of a sudden, all the people who developed it come in, and they have more power than the farmers. Our neighbor can tell us that it smells bad, and we got to stop doing what we're doing. The neighbors can say, you're too loud when you have people come on your property, and you can't do what you're doing. Farmers need to be allowed to be creative. This, the system in this state does not allow it. Talk to our son, Peter, who lived in Vermont and Oregon, and those systems in those states allow it. Yeah. Encourage it. Yes. Encourage it. We do not encourage it as a state. Hey, Spike. So um, your Can anecdote. You yeah. I'm uh, I'm, my name is Julian Kroboth. Uh, I, I work for a nonprofit in DC that does aggregation and distribution, kind of pointed at uh, access, you know, low access customer bases, and we work strictly with local farmers. Uh, so your, your uh, anecdote kind of got me thinking when it, when it comes to uh, sort of these, these processes and, and being in sort of a middleman uh, position, you know, just with regard to your, your story about the tomato canning, you know, um, as sort of a, a intermediary, there's this, especially for like local sustainable food, there's this kind of push-pull that you're operating with when it comes to 
trying to source uh, this food at an, at a rate that can be passed on to the, the customer affordably and also giving the producer a fair price for their product. So when you say, you know, whatever it was, 27, 28 cents a pound for their tomatoes, and that is, a, you know, a premium comparatively to commodity cropping, but I'm thinking, you know, what kind of profit is the farmer turning off of 28 cents a pound tomatoes, especially if they're spray-free? So, so what's kind of been your experience with that, and how do you sort of mitigate and, and, and play that balancing act between giving the farms that you work with a fair, a fair price for their product and also being able to turn around and sell a product that customers are going to be able to afford? Right. It's, a huge, it's, it's the ultimate tension, I think, with what I do is trying to communicate that. Some people think that Woodbury is too expensive. Uh, uh, but, and that 27 cents was for a, a farmer who was, um, you know, who, who was growing tomatoes for canning. It was destructive harvest, um, really efficient. It was impressive to see how he did it. But, you know, buying tomatoes from John Shaw is an entirely different equation for me. And that's closer to $2 a pound, I would say, on average. So... Um, for me, it was always trying to understand, and the only reason I know anything about farming, which I don't know how to farm, but I know what I know about farming is from farmers, and w my entry point is what they need to make from their, you know, we have a conversation on, almost on, an, on a daily basis about what they need to make it work, and, um, and then trying to, you know, I, I've always kind of characterized my business as being, is trying to to purchase things for as much as I can possibly pay as opposed to as little and sell it for as little as I possibly can um, to try to get people to kind of uh, come along with us. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that, you know, after 13 years has never gone away. Um, I think I've gotten a little more informed about it, but it's still the central tension of trying to support these growers um, in what they do because I think it's the best, most important work that's happening. Um, and translate it to an experience here at Artifact, at Woodbury, at a Rake's Progress in DC, or wherever we're working, uh, that makes sense for guests. And it's not easy. I mean, there's still a lot of folks that are not, you know, understanding that there's value here. And I think that's uh, a huge part of the conversation that we have not been successful. Yeah, and I should have bracketed having. that statement with, you know, just understanding that the response by the the more uh, conventional uh, agribusiness and, and commodity growing has been essentially a race to the bottom yes. in terms of trying to make, you know, cut your prices, whether that's through labor or, you know, uh, a more expanded and streamlined operation and infrastructure. And so that makes your job infinitely, infinitely more difficult. Um, so I, I, you know, I was just interested in, in what your perspective has, has been like on that. It's just that, you know, it's kind of what Dina's saying. I think it's, it's something we all, sh it's just like get every dollar you can back to these growers. Um, for me, that's, you know, that's why aggregation hasn't been a huge, you know, I figured it out as we went and I, did, I didn't want some, somebody else coming along and taking some of that money. I think our food system, one of the reasons it's broken is way too much of our food dollar goes into the, all the people that are in between us and the growers. The, the transportation and the processing and the, and the, and the, and the retailing. Um, and that's, that's why I want as much as, as every dollar that I spend on food, I wanted to get back to, to, to farmers uh, to the extent possible. So um, 
My question is, I'm wondering if there's any, if you've taken a look at the people who are in this room, the people who have chosen to eat locally and show up to these things, why they've chosen to do it. Where the Because I think consumer buy-in needs to be there. And if it's not financial, what is it for people? And I know for me, I'm Catholic, and Catholic guilt did it for me. So, <laughs> like, I mean, I hear... It, it was first a teen, <laughs> but if it's not going to be because the dollars and cents never pull me when I hear for me listening, I think it was eating meat and listening to it in the images of the industrial farming that that shaming every time I reach for that, I can't do it. And I'm a midwife and talking about the separation of those animals, the mom and baby animals. I was in my kitchen listening to the audiobook, and I went, oh, no, 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 no. And ever since then, I can't do it again. So I'm wondering where the push is on the awareness of the alternative. When you don't choose local, this is what you're choosing. Right. And a, who's doing that, it? Because yeah. I think it's a real winner. No, and that's a great point, is not thinking about how much, you know, because there is a, going to be a higher price point for the food that we're talking about, but also illuminating all of the hidden costs that go into supporting um, the alternative um, on a large scale, which is cost to the environment, cost to our health, cost to our farm workers and those running the farms. Um, and I think what brings folks over is a myriad of issues. I think it's all of the things that I listed. Um, you know, care for health, care for the environment. Um, for me, it's like every time I spend something, I'm like, great, this is going in community, and I'm working to change my food system. Um, and Fair Farms has seen great success with that. We started just four years ago, and we've grown. We now have a consumer base of 50,000 people that are if not committed, at least interested in learning more about how they can support a more community-based, local, sustainable food system. And I think that's great. Um, but yeah, I think everyone comes at it to a different PR. issue. That's, that's a shaming PR campaign. Well, like, we try like to... Like the garment industry. Right. Right. I mean, there, there are definitely... There are a lot of groups tumor. that take the shame angle. We try and take more of the positive, additive, here's what you can do, here are solutions that you can... And I think... You know, different messages are going to resonate with different people. Um, we try to stay on the more positive solution space because we don't want people to get disheartened and, you know, throw their hands up and walk away or feel like, oh, no, this is so daunting and I have no idea what I can do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the groups that, that take the other angle, I think, are just as valid. And Who are they? I'm not yeah, going to name they? names. Um, <laughs> so it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um, as you get more and more into the farming world, it ceases to be so black and white. And Future Harvest has really moved away from demonizing um, different ways of farming. We'll come out very strongly in favor of a kind of farming. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about judicious use of synthetics rather than no use of synthetics because it is tough for all farmers. It really is. Um, and the systems working against everything is, they're just daunting. Right. So um, this is a good moment for an advertisement. Um, there's a stack of edible DCs out there, and I know it's contraband in Baltimore to just, you know, you're not allowed to distribute these in Baltimore. But um, in Is that it, true? 
No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, kick her out. Yeah. There's, there's no it's edible Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. Can, uh, can get upset, but this is just off the presses of yesterday, and um, we have a Go Grass Fed campaign, and one of our partners is Edible DC, and we have an insert in this one called Go Grass Fed, and it's how to buy grass fed meat, um, how to start a buying club and support farmers, where to find farmers to buy whole cows from, and stock your freezer for the the winters so um there's a stack i think for most people there so you can take that um so yeah and kind of like really quickly piggybacking off of what dina said that i i think stay are vilifying farmers that really see their role as um just trying to feed the world isn't the way that the avenue that we need to take it's not i don't think so because it's working so well otherwise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, I mean, will we vilify, like... Um... There's a difference between vilifying a farmer and vilifying an industry. Why? Why, why not vilify Exxon or, you know, if, if you see what the role that Exxon... No, I'm saying a, a farming industry. Well, why not? I mean, some of these farms are, are giant, multinational. Let's vilify them. Well, we're talking about... The farm workers or... Culture, yeah, right. Egg in the middle, not necessarily... Could we vilify Purdue? Is it okay to vilify Purdue? Well, they are driving the market right now to organic grain. Yeah. They are a huge market driver. Um, and so, yes, it's not the model that we're looking for, but we can piggyback off of that to get more and meet farmers where they are. Because on the Delmarva, they are growing grain, right? And so we now have a cadre of conventional farmers who want to transition to organic, and not just organic, but organic regenerative, and I can explain out at dinner what that is. <laughs> um, and we're starting a mentorship program. We just got a project started to do that for uh, grain growers who are trying to transition. So even, even that has a nuanced story to it. Um, but no, we would not, you were trying to move away from a system of confined animal feeding operations and that kind of thing. Um, and we will always tell the positive story about the alternative. Mm -hmm. But you consumers have to step up because yeah, there's, it's I think hard that's... to make a living off of backyard, uh, pasture chickens. Two more questions. I think we could keep going here. Right here, right here. Okay. Okay. So one way I think to expand the market is to get a little bit more serious about PR. Impossible meat, go meatless, it's all I hear. I disagree vehemently, however, it's all I've been hearing. So why are we no longer hearing support your local farmer who's healing the earth, not destroying the earth? We aren't combating. What do you disagree vehemently with? With impossible? Meatless. Meatless Monday in New York City. You disagree with that? Absolutely. Why? They should have a choice. They should have a choice. Meat that is well-raised is one of the new, most nutritional things you can give a kid. But Much even, better than lentils. But even the most nutritious meat is, still has a negative environmental impact. Not if you're farming uh, no, regenerative. No, it does not, Spike. Not if you have it in the backyard. No, I mean, actually, the science is so out on that, Spike. You said that to me the other day. It is. Get with it. Yeah. It really is. And there's a new study out by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation which says exactly the opposite, that it actually it is a net carbon 
um, sequesterer is grazing. The science is there. Mm -hmm. the right, but that's not the meat that's being served in the city schools. Exactly. Right. But what I'm saying is don't make meat the bad person. And let's not vilify. Let's switch back. Let's get the PR under all the amazing things. But let's be clear that meat is the bad person. I will never. No, depending on how it's grown. Well, yeah, we're talking the meat the way it's being grown right. right now is the bad person on this planet. No, it isn't. Oh, it is. It is. Flying yes. in a private plane is a bad person. <laughs> For those of us, all you private jet flyers in here, you. But, but meat, meat is the. I think meat is the bad person. I don't say all oh, meat. You know, are you being provocative? No, I'm saying <laughs> if you if you could. It's right, but that's meat. Yeah, but when yeah. you talk about grass-fed meat, do you put that in that category? Oh, my God. <laughs> Dana's calling the timeout. <laughs> you need to wear a... We're losing, we're losing, folks. <laughs> One more there. I don't know. I was going to ask a provocative question. <laughs> we're trying to get out to dinner, but go ahead. I just... So, kind of in... Uh, I'm Lisa. I'm a journalist. I cover agriculture. <laughs> um, so I'm also Spike's girlfriend, unrelated. Um, <laughs> um, so I think, you know, you're all sort of talking about having this positive messaging, and I really resonated with what you were saying about, you know, this people respond to different kinds of messaging. But there was this whole message coming from back here about it needs to be policy. We need to think bigger, and policy is the answer. You know, we, we're not going to change all this. And... Then you start talking about Purdue and companies like that. I did that. But yeah. Yes. Well, um, in the state of Maryland, policy, you have to think about Purdue if you're going to think about policy. And so my question to all of you that are working on policy in Maryland is how do you go about doing your work not calling out companies like that if they're controlling the legislature, which according to lots of people I've talked to, they pretty much are. So how do you pass? I, how do you pass the stuff yeah, that needs I disagree. to happen? I think there are a lot of legislative champions that um, that don't feel that control. There's a sustainable ag. I, they haven't decided what they're going to call it. Maybe working group of legislators in Maryland, delegates and senators that are interested and in working to support and create policy that will lift up small, sustainable, mid-sized farmers in Maryland. I think there are a lot of folks. You know that are um, a lot of decision makers that are, be, that are increasingly interested in agriculture as a solution to environmental problems. Um, and a myriad, I mean, a lot of them are environmentally oriented legislators. But yeah, I, I disagree. I think that, um, and kind of going back to what, what was said earlier about you know, not feeling like there's support in your county for ag, talk to your legislators, talk to your decision makers. I feel like, especially on the state and local level, we have so much more influence over what they do than we think. And really all it takes is one or two farmers. I mean, Peter in the back, shout out to Peter. Um, he testif he's testified on behalf of us on a few different pieces of legislation. And I really do think that his voice was one of the main reasons why some of that legislation was passed and pushed through. That's really good to hear. Yeah. But that, would you say yeah, that that's a relatively new state of affairs for the state of Maryland in that, you yes. know, that I think. But I think it's a trend. Okay, and I think, good. I think uh, it's it, only going to increase. I hope so. I hope you're right. Keep fighting a good fight. We'll try it. <laughs> I think Peter wants the last. <laughs> 
Well, if, if I'm going to make a last word, I guess I should make it some sort of resonance. Um, yeah, well, I mean, so we're talking pretty big cultural, economic, head, like, paradigms here. And if we think back to, like, where the commodity ag paradigm came from, it all is birthed in post-World War II economic boom, where you have these industries to feed a massive war effort, have their market collapse, and then you need to sustain their existence, so you start developing a wartime approach to feeding the nation. So, you know, we have this system that is now built to where it is now, and it's just accepted as the norm, and it was built on this cataclysmic change in technology and perspective, and it's kind of just culture now. And we're in the midst of a cultural war right now to acknowledge the importance of quality and preserving the environment and the resources that feed us at our most basic level. And we're seeing that market grow at increasingly rapid rates every year. So it's messy and it's not necessarily the big cataclysmic change that post-World War II collapse was, but it's moving and it's moving in faster in places than another, and it might seem like a quagmire a little bit here in Maryland, but it is a, this is definitely not a state that's moving as fast as other places in this nation or around the globe. And I think that maybe it's hard to see the force of the trees right now in, in regards to where we're actually going. Maryland you know. is pretty progressive, though. We were either the second or third to pass an antibiotics ban on farms. Um, we are, are looking at healthy soils legislation that other states haven't passed and explored. So I feel like Maryland's more progressive than people give it credit for. We have slow. more slow. farmers markets slow, yeah, per capita sure. in Maryland than any other state. I think I just read this. and. We have the best cover crop program no pretty much in the nation. Um, because of the bay, the water implementation plans to, to protect. I, I don't want to go into the, too much detail because I know we're hungry. Um, but look up cover, Google cover crops. And um, this our state is actually really good. They're not great, but they're really good. Yeah, we can always better, be better than other but, states. Yeah. Well, they're better than other states, you know? <laughs> So we have 50% enrollment rather than 2 to 4%, which is the um, in cover crop programs. So. Including Pennsylvania, right? Oh, God. Pennsylvania is <laughs> uh, another story. But anyway, in defense of Maryland, but you're right. It could be better. Yeah, for sure. But could be yeah, better. The needle moves slower in a cultural discussion than it does in a fundamental economic shift that's already in place. And, you know, the needle's moving. The needle's moving. That's as hopeful as we're <laughs> I want to thank my esteemed panel here. This has been, an, I think, one of the best conversations we've ever had. This incredible group that showed up here to talk about this, that care, clearly cares about this. Your care will be rewarded tonight with one of the best dinners we've ever served at Origins. Lauren Sandler's been out there cooking her heart out, and um, I know we have a spectacular supper uh, that's going to feature the best of our late summer, early fall produce. Uh, from great local farms. I'm excited to, uh, to, to, to dine with you all tonight. Part of the, uh, the drill here is to get up 
and get out of this room so we can reset it for supper. But thank you guys for being here. Amazing conversation. Thanks again for joining us tonight for our conversation at Artifact Coffee. With special thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Donnie Carlo for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to them for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.